If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18, and then uh, the first portion of uh, chapter 5. It's a longer passage, so if you would pay attention through this. Um, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Christ, life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for, by, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Amen. The word of the Lord. Walking by faith in a nutshell means living in such a way where you have both your mortality and the resurrection in full view. So I want, to, I want you to keep that in, in the back of your minds. A full understanding, a full developed theology of your mortality and the resurrection. And, you know, you might be thinking, well, that's such a morbid way to live. But in the face of the inevitability of death, it is actually the most joyous and the most courageous way to live. And, you know, that's what I'm learning as I've been going through my own health issues, as well as seeing my father pass away uh, last spring and um, spending time with my dear friend, Pastor Eddie, who passed away recently uh, after a battle with cancer. And, you know, if you simply walk by sight, The negative events of life can never be seen as ultimately good. But in this passage, Paul teaches us that if we walk by faith, God takes what seems to be bad on the surface and uses it for his ultimate good. And specifically, we see this happening in three distinct ways in this long passage that we read. And those are are, are these. First, our weakness brings glory to God. Second, our suffering prepares us to be then glorified by God. And third, our mortality fixes our focus on the resurrection. And so you'll see this uh, ascending order of pain in our lives, but adjoining that pain 
is all of these spiritual benefits that come alongside that. And in verse 7, we're told that we're like jars of clay that hold an immense treasure to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And what is this treasure? I don't want to read the verse, but the treasure, according to the previous verses, is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ or the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Those are actually synonymous descriptions of the very same thing. And Paul is talking about this experiential knowledge of the power of God's glory through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And here on earth, that knowledge is our treasure because it leads to salvation, eternal life, hope and suffering, victory over evil, and countless other emotional, spiritual, and psychological benefits, right? There is no end to the benefits of having this treasure within us. But the thing is, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And I think that's really a paradox, because from an earthly perspective, if you had a great treasure, wouldn't you put it into something strong and unbreakable, right? That's our natural thought. If you had a flawless 10-carat diamond that was worth millions of dollars, wouldn't you place it in a vault that couldn't be damaged nor broken into? But there's a problem with that. The problem is if you place a treasure like that into a safe box, you can appreciate its beauty. It's hidden. It's locked in. In order to appreciate the glory of a diamond, you need to display it in a glass case which is comparatively weak, fragile, and easily breakable. And the first statement in the Westminster Catechism is that the chief end of man is what? Hopefully you're a good Reformed church here. What is it, guys? Maybe you're not a good Reformed church. (laughs) It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Remember that, right? The chief end, your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, you know, I've come to learn that this is something that should be easy to do because it's natural for us, right? It's only natural. But in reality, it's incredibly difficult, right? When I tell you, do all things for the glory of God, what's your immediate reaction? I can't. It's incredibly hard for me to do that. But it should be natural. And here's what I mean. When someone is stronger, smarter, and more capable than you, they naturally should receive the glory. For example, if I can't lift something up, right, and Pastor Ulysses comes to my rescue, and he says, you know what, you're old, Pastor Mark, scoot over, right, and I will lift it for you, then what happens? The glory then belongs to him, right? And so what's going on there? Well, my weakness provides an opportunity for the glory of Ulysses to shine (laughs) forth. And yet, of course, as a competitive person, I would prefer to keep that glory to myself. I'm a glory hog personally, right? And, And so you get competitive, and you would rather not give that glory to another. But in theory, at least, if that other person is God, well, I should be more than willing to confess my weakness and give him the glory that he deserves, right? That should be the natural course. It's only natural because there shouldn't be any competition between me and God. But as we all know, it is incredibly difficult to confess our weakness no matter who it is. And in reality, we are very competitive, even with God. 
And we have been that way ever since we fell into the, te- into the temptation to become just like God, knowing good and evil. It is the inherent fallen state that we have received. And, and from that original sin, Mankind has been driven to be as strong, as smart, and as self-sufficient as God himself. And all the while, we fail to realize how burdensome it is to try and become something that we're not. We are not God, amen? Right? But yet we try. And that's where so much of the burden falls upon us. And yet Jesus says, my yoke is easy, right? My burden is light. And I think the reason why so many of us feel so overburdened is we're carrying a load that doesn't belong to us, right? It belongs to God. You know, back in the 90s, when I became a Christian, there was a pastor by the name of John Wimber who was very influential in my growth as a Christian. He's actually very influential in your life as well. You just don't know it. Uh, If you don't know him, uh, he's actually the one who introduced contemporary worship to the world uh, through the ministry of the vineyard uh, in Anaheim. Hillsong, Elevation Worship, Maverick City, they're actually imperfect representations of what Wimber envisioned as the use of music in the church. And if I offend, I'm sorry. (laughs) For Wimber, uh, music was a means to facilitate worship so that people's hearts would be open to the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That was it. It was never meant to just move people emotionally or have a, a good time of introspection, right? That was not the point of uh, the music that he introduced uh, to the world. And he realized as a professional musician, you can use any secular song for that. And as a, a vocalist, musician, amazing keyboardist, Wimber was well aware of the power of music, which is not the same as the power of God, right? And sometimes we confuse that, right? There are things that music does to us, right? But that can never uh, be um, or take the place of the power of God. Anyways, here's the connection. That's a tangent. That's another message on worship later on, right? The connection is this. In his early 40s, Wimber experienced complete emotional, spiritual, probably mental burnout. Uh, At that point, he was leading 11 Bible studies, okay? So one, that's it. That's all you got, one. (laughs) He was leading 11 Bible studies uh, that had over 500 people while serving as the pastor of your Belinda Friends Church. And the 500, okay, this is the, the crazy thing, 500 were new believers, right? Amazing evangelists, right? Gifted evangelists. Um, dynamic, charismatic personality. In order to draw that many people, right, you need to be dynamic and charismatic in personality. Very, very astute theologically. He actually um, founded the uh, Center of Church Growth at, at Fuller. And he channeled all of that dynamic, uh, his strength in, into bringing hundreds of people to Christ and leading these Bible studies. But as a result, he experienced anxiety, depression, and exhaustion. Right? What, a, uh, what a blessing right, for all that work. And during his time of burnout, as he wrestled with God, this is what Wimber said he heard from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit said, John, I've seen your ministry. Now let me show you mine. <laughs> That's crazy, right? I've seen what you could do. Now I'll show you what I could do. And 
you know, when God showed Wimber what he could do, right, things changed, right, things flipped upside down uh, in the church, and, you know, there is always a mixture of motivations in the human heart, and Wimber wasn't doing all these things purely for God, as much as I think he was trying to help God, um, I think a lot of it was in, on his own strength and not in the strength of the Spirit. And the thing is, God doesn't need our help, amen? Right? God absolutely does not need our help. And in his time of weakness, Wimber repented of trying to do ministry by his own power, and God used him to introduce the power of the Holy Spirit back into the Western church. And you know, I, I still remember some of the services we'd go to, and he'd come up to speak, and he really gave a, a simple message in his casual, conversational way. And, and you wondered how God could use something like that. And it's like, you know, that was not a great message. And he would close in prayer, and then he would ask for the Holy Spirit. And, and you could palpably sense the presence of God fall into that room, right? It was heavenly, right? It was nothing like I've ever experienced before. And the true power of God is displayed oftentimes through the powerless so that there is no mistake where that power comes from, right? No mistake whatsoever that it all comes from God and for his glory alone. And, you know, there's a part of us, or or maybe it's just a part of me, that doesn't always trust God's intention, right? I don't. I'm not sure if you do. God, why do you want all the glory? And, you know, as a young believer, I, I wrestled with the concept of soli deo gloria, to God be the glory alone. I thought to myself, well, doesn't that make God selfish, egotistical? After all, if I wanted all the glory to myself, it would make me a, a narcissistic maniac, which I might be, right? Uh, but, again, I think that's the spirit of competition, rearing its ugly head in the disguise for the concern of God. And, you know, I've learned that God, you know, eventually, uh, uniquely can demand all glory for himself, not only because he alone deserves it, but also because he alone can perfectly glorify those whom he loves. He's glorified, right? But ultimately, he wants to return that glory. Now, the hard part is, How God prepares us to be glorified is not what we want, and and it's often, uh, because it's often through the furnace of affliction, and our suffering prepares us, actually, to be glorified by God. Um, Verse 8 through 9, which I believe are the most beautifully written thoughts on the subject of suffering in all of human history, tells us this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And there is so much candor, honesty, vulnerability in those verses. Paul speaks of suffering that has brought him near to the point of breaking, but somehow he's preserved from hopelessness and a sense of being defeated. And what I love about these verses is that they're not overly triumphalistic because walking by faith is not easy, right? It's not a bed of roses. And the thing is, all of us in this room, we want a life full of victories, achievements, and promotions. And we want that in in a nice, tidy series until we get to the crowning event in heaven. But that is not how the process of glorification works. God prepares us to be glorified 
through the pain of life. But if we have this perspective, we can really experience what Paul writes at the end of this chapter, chapter 4. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I think, you know, this is so contrary to the principles of of this world. And I think even the way that some Christians look at their own faith is a little bit upside down. We see this in the fact, you know, that, that one of the underlying tensions between Paul and the Corinthians and why he writes these letters was the question of Paul's apostleship. In the eyes of some of the believers in the Corinthian church, Paul did not seem to be walking in God's blessing. And therefore, he shouldn't be called an apostle. And according to Paul's own testimony, he had a thorn, most likely a form of sickness that God would not heal, even though he had persistently prayed for healing. He was shipwrecked three times in his travels across the Mediterranean. He was beaten on multiple occasions, even to the point of death. He was abandoned by friends, had no family of his own. He gave long and boring sermons. Right? How could anyone say, you know, this man was blessed? It looked like his life was, was actually cursed. And I think a simple eye test would tell you that Paul shouldn't be considered to be blessed by God because there was so much suffering in his life. And that's, if we only saw him through our physical eyes, that would be our evaluation of him. And I think it takes a great deal of faith, doesn't it, to be able to recognize that suffering and pain can actually be signs and really the proof of God's deeper work in our lives, right? That that's the case. You know, I love this quote from the book, A Grace Disguised by Jerry's sister. He says this, It is not therefore true that we become less through loss. Unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there is nothing left, loss can also make us more. Right? It can. And I think that's something that I've learned through this past year. That all the things that I've lost the relationships, the friendships that that I've lost through pain and suffering is actually causing me to become more in some way. And, you know, personally, I think the last few years, and, you know, one of the reasons why I took such a long break, the last few years have been incredibly difficult for me, as I'm sure it has been for so many of us. Uh, The culture wars in our church really took a toll on me, especially as I saw the division, the accusations, the questioning of, of leadership, and some of that stress naturally created difficulties in our marriage. And to top things off, you know, I had these growing health concerns. And you know, I think there are, are countless ways that life can overwhelm us, whether it is an eroding marriage, a wayward child, a health crisis, conflict in the home, divisions in the church that um, I hope I'm not depressing you guys, right? But you get the point, right? Right? And, you know, with the economy, prolonged unemployment, toxic, you know, it goes on and on and on, right? Life sucks, right? At times, at times. And, And there are endless permutations to the troubles we can experience. And usually it feels like it comes in waves. And not surprisingly, it's usually in response to a combination of these problems where people experience mental or emotional crisis. And I think on the less severe side, 
you can experience discouragement and a loss of heart, as, as we read here. On the more severe end, it's common, I think, for people, especially in this day and age, to fall into depression as they try to cope with the trials and tribulations of life. And, um, you know, in a room this size, people this size, uh, I think a church this size, uh, I think it's safe to assume that some of us are going through a period of anxiety, fear, loneliness, and perhaps even depression, and you don't see any end in sight, and we can begin to feel hopeless, right? That's a natural thing that happens in people's lives. And I, I believe that the darkest place that a person uh, can find themselves in, whether it's spiritually or emotionally, is the state of hopelessness. And let me read some of the symptoms. This is a little tangent, but some of the symptoms of this emotional condition, spiritual depression, as Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it. And um, four things, and maybe you can do a quick self-evaluation. Lots of interest in activities and work that you once enjoyed a tendency to disconnect from meaningful relationships, feelings of powerlessness and helplessness, and an inability to see a way out of your current problems. And I don't know about you, when I was going through uh, some of my difficulties, I could really identify with all four of these things. And if that's you, um, I think you should uh, you know, maybe reach out to Pastor Ulysses. I'll be here on Tuesdays as well. Uh, just reach out to the pastoral staff. Um, this is not therapy. It's pastoral counseling. Uh, but it's something that's very, very important. If you're in therapy, I think it's important that you balance your clinical therapy with some pastoral counseling as well uh, to get a more holistic, more well-rounded view of you know, what you're going through. And um, many people in the church are going through difficult times, right? And you are not alone in it. Amen? You are not alone. And... In the midst of that, and though it's not easy, trying to understand God's purpose for your suffering, I think it makes the pain a little more bearable. And the clearer that you're able to see what God is doing, the easier the burden becomes. And, you know, as I've gone through my own personal trials, here's the thing. I think I've become a better person. I don't know if my wife would agree. I think <laughs> I think I have become a better person. I have become more patient right? Less anxious. I'm learning to embrace what is truly important, not to be bothered by so much of the trivial matters of life. I'm enjoying relationships again and relearning how to love others. And, and there I say, I'm inching my way towards the likeness of Christ. I need to work on my humility, right? But I'm inching my way right, towards the likeness of Christ. Because one day, one day, I will become just like him. And, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to imagine that future scenario, that one day each and every one of us who profess Christ as Lord and Savior, that we will be made like him. Right? That is the weight of glory that awaits us and, and makes all of this pain seem light and momentary, Right? That's the incredible reward and gift that God has for us. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about you know, what we will experience right, as we meet God face to face. He says, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, 
but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight of burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is, right? So it is. It's absolutely true. And Lewis is alluding to the fact that one day we will be made perfect and who we are will finally align with God's acceptance. Right now, I think God pities us more than accepts us, right? Like these, you know, broken creatures, right, who need him. But one day we will be made perfect, and who we are will align to that acceptance. But the door to that world is death because our resurrection awaits on the other side. And, you know, as Christians, if we think correctly about life and death, you realize that the thought of our own mortality doesn't fill us with dread, but rather with hope, because it fixes our thoughts on the resurrection, which is the last point. It fixes it on the resurrection. And what's interesting is that Paul, he wrote 2 Corinthians 10 years before his death, right? He didn't have like a terminal illness so that he had to think about mortality. He began to develop his thoughts uh, his views and his understanding of mortality and resurrection well before it was time to go. And I think that's important. The earlier, earlier you do it, the better. It's like investments, right? The earlier you start, the better it is for you in the long run. And in the same way, the earlier you begin to think about the fact that your life has a confined limitation, a set number of days, the earlier you start thinking about the resurrection, the more your life will be fuller, the more your life will be better for it. And, and why do I say that? Well, when you have something you set in the future, right, it not only affects you know, the future, it affects your present, doesn't it, right? And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, way back when, when I was foolish, um, I thought I could be like Michael Jordan, actually. <laughs> you guys remember those commercials? Probably not. It's like Gatorade, be like Mike. You know, I was like 12. I thought, oh, I want to be just like Mike, right? And so that future goal, right, of becoming like Mike, not like Jesus, but becoming like Mike, right, it actually, um, it affected the present, you know, my, my younger me, right? And the way it did was, I started playing basketball every single day. By the way, I was pretty good. Fred was a lot better. Dr. Fred, if you've never played with him, he's really good. Anyways, do you still play? A little bit. No, he's not as good anymore, right? Maybe you could take him now. Uh, but, but, I mean, you, you get it, right? Because I had something set in the future, and I thought it was possible, right, I began to play every single day. It impacted my day to day. And here's the thing. If you think the resurrection is true, if you think that you will one day be like Jesus, then it will impact your day to day. It will impact your life today. But the thing is, I think for most Christians, the resurrection is some far off dream, right? It's not a re reality. It's kind of a wish, maybe. Maybe I could be that. But it is not cemented in our minds as a reality. And so because of that, the resurrection has no power in our lives. But Paul talks about the power of the resurrection. 
The power of the resurrection was meant to be lived in. Amen? Every single day of your life. And the resurrection has to be cemented into your mind so that it does that. And, you know, I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyways, as Christians, you know, as Christians, if we think correctly about, you know, life and death, you realize that, you know, this thought, it doesn't fill us with dread, as I shared, but it begins to fill our hearts with so much more. And in the verses that we read from chapter 5, we see death and resurrection being likened to a tent versus an eternal dwelling in the heavens. And the bodies that we have now were always meant to be temporary. And the thing is, as we get older, perhaps as we get sick, as we grow weaker, our spirit groans, right, to put on the permanent. If you've been around old people, you'll, see, you'll hear them groaning for no reason all the time, right? And, you know, like I groan, like, oh, right, i got to get up, right? Everything, you know, especially after the surgery, hurts. And in a weird way, you know, I've been, you know, telling Mira that uh, this doesn't feel like my body anymore. Right? It doesn't feel like, you know, what happened to my old body? And I, I think if we don't have our, our, our thoughts fixed in, in to the, the future, into the resurrection, we begin to go into the past. And I say stupid things like, you know, I wish I was 20 again. I don't think so. I don't think I want to be 20 again. But, you know, that's what I, you know, begin to wish. Instead of fixing my thoughts on the future, I begin to fix my thoughts on the past. I wish I was even 30 a- again. But I realized that my wife, who is the godlier one of us too, right, she always says, it's morbid, she says, I wish I could go to heaven. Right? I'm like, no, don't go, right? <laughs> that's what she says. I wish I could go. To, but that's the right answer, isn't it? Right? I wish I could go. Right? She even said that today, like, what if we all die today in the rain, right? And we'll go all to heaven, right? And I'm a poor Jeremiah, right, who's in Houston anyways. Um, and, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, when you get a little older and your body begins to groan, it's telling you that there's another body awaiting for you, right? There is another body that is free of sickness, free of pain, free from the death that is waiting each and every one of us. And, you know, I think it is rather unfortunate that we don't think about the resurrection out of East, outside of Easter or until we're seriously ill, but it was meant to have a far greater impact on our lives and to be more per- pervasive in our day-to-day living. And, you know, at the most fundamental basic level, I think it's meant to have this impact that Tim Keller uh, talks about. He says uh, this in The King's Cross If you know that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life you're ever going to have, that you will someday have a perfect life, who cares what people do to you? You're free from ultimate anxieties in this life so you can be brave and take risks. You can face the worst thing, even life in a wheelchair, with joy and with hope, right? I think at the fundamental, most basic level, this is the impact that the power of the resurrection was meant to have in each and every one of our lives. To free us from anxieties, to free us from the worries of what other people think or what other people are trying to do to you, right? Or what's happening in your life, right? That you can't control anyways. Imagine if we were able to live in that power. How much freer, how much happier, how much more joyful you would be. And I think... 
you know, apart from the health reasons, I think one of the reasons I, I think it was good for me to step away from, you know, leading the church uh, when I did was I was starting to lose joy, right? I was starting to lose happiness. And I needed to come back to that. And the resurrection of Christ really helped me to get to that. And, you know, during my sabbatical, I was reminded of the, uh, the shortness of life and in January, you know, and with the soon land this ship here. Uh, my, my friend, Pastor Eddie, uh, he called me to tell me that he had stage four stomach cancer and, and that without a miracle, he would have about a year to live. And I think, sadly, uh, this proved to be all too accurate. And I remember uh, one of our conversations, we had several conversations, first time, you know, that I've walked with a friend uh, to, uh, you know, to that door to the other side. And he told me that he wasn't afraid to die, uh, but that he was more afraid of how he would die. Right? No one wants the pain of death. And his preference was actually to simply fall asleep and not wake up. And I remember Pastor Sung, who was another friend of ours, said, no, duh, everyone wants to go that way, right? <laughs> like, like, that's so dumb, right? <laughs> Very candid, right? <laughs> like, here's a man dying of cancer, right? <laughs> and he tells him, like, you know, that's the way we all want to go, not only you. Uh, but, you know, in the end, um, God granted him that wish. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to uh, visit him a couple of days before he passed. And he was completely lucid, right? He was cracking jokes. Uh, he shared his last thoughts with me. He rebuked us, right? When, you, when you're about to die, right, you get really bold, man. <laughs> it's like rebuking everybody, right? And you're telling us what to do. Uh, I will tell you a joke of what he said. I won't. It's probably uh, rated R. Anyways, it was so hard for me to believe that he wouldn't be around anymore afterwards, right? And I, told, I thought, man, just keep him on the IV, right? You know, keep him on you know, this, you know, the, the apparatus so that he won't die. He's still funny, right? And selfishly, right, I wanted him around. But I think he realized that his earthly body had come to an end, right? That he was being sustained by artificial means. And so he said, you know, just keep me alive until I could say my goodbyes and, and then take me off the machine. Right. That was actually his wish, and he knew that once they took out the IV, that was really keeping up his blood sugar levels, he knew that he would fall asleep, and that he would wake up on the other side, and he was so much at peace. God granted him that final prayer, that final wish. I'm going to pray that. We all should pray that, actually, right? But God gave him uh, that wish, and you know, as I thought about his passing, it was joyous, sad, joyous, you know, up and down. But I, I don't know why, but I, I thought of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, there's a scene um, in one of the books where Gandalf, uh, the great wizard, right, the God figure uh, from the books, he says to the fragile hobbits near the end of their adventure, he says, the hand of the king are hands of healing to your friends. But you went to the very brink of death before he recalled you, putting forth all his power and sent you into the sweet forgetfulness of sleep. That's such a beautiful picture of mortality and the resurrection. Into the sweet forgetfulness of sleep. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is saying, I can take the worst 
of your suffering or your sorrow or your pain and transform it into a sweet night of sleep where everything past feels like nothing but a dream. And coming out of it, you are healed from all your sin, all your sorrow, all the regrets and all the pains of this world. That when we finally wake up from this dream, we can be free to pursue all of our hopes, all of our passions, to become all that we were destined to become without the heavy burden of our fears, our doubts, and our tears. I think all of us in this room desperately need this to be true, not only for eternal life, but for life here and now. Amen. Why don't we pray? I'm going to give you a few moments to think about the message. I know I said a lot, probably meandered quite a bit as well, right? But I hope some of that sank deep into your heart and you're thinking about perhaps the pain that, you know, you're kind of repressing, maybe some of your fears. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak into that right now. Allow the Spirit to come and to fill you with the power of the resurrection. Amen. Right. So, give you a few moments here as uh, the praise team is setting up. Praise God. fill this place and to fill our hearts, Lord God. Only the power, Lord, that raised Christ from the dead, God, fill our dying hearts, Lord. 